realized that through my writing and through journalism was how I could make the biggest impact with the ideas and the changes that I wanted to see uh, happen in society. I am so excited that you are joining me at the table today. My guest today is Liz Plank, an award-winning journalist, author, and the creator and host of Heart Homework, a podcast that offers emotional support for an increasingly chaotic news cycle. She has been recognized as one of the 50 most influential women by Marie Claire magazine and was named one of Forbes 30 under 30 in media. Today, Liz and I talk about the importance of storytelling, who really gets to control and own and shape a narrative. We also talk about her book, For the Love of Men, which delves into why men are critical partners and allies and leaders in gender equality. And we also talk about how important it is for women, particularly white women, to be supporting movements for minority and marginalized communities. I'm really excited about this conversation. I personally learned a lot and enjoyed it, and I hope you do too. This is At the Table with Dr. Elam Murabit. Now, for those of you who don't know me, I am a UN high-level commissioner on health, employment, and economic growth, one of 17 global UN sustainable development goal advocates. I am also a medical doctor and a women's rights champion and strategist. I have traveled the world and met people who are leaders in their own industries, and I've met people who have completely changed the game, from names that we know to names that we don't. There are people who have championed inclusive security more than anything else. So At The Table is really a collection of in-depth conversations and interviews with leaders in all industries. It's looking at how we create systems and structures and communities and selves that really represent what we need in the world today. Now, it's been called At The Table because I think the single most important thing is for us to create and cultivate spaces. And this one is mine where I invite you to connect with and to learn from and to teach one another about the importance of inclusive leadership and making sure that when you are at any table, you are bringing somebody with you, an idea with you, a perspective with you that isn't already there. So thank you again for joining me. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening and for being here. And please let me know, what does being at the table mean to you? And who are you bringing with you? Liz, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me and thank you for that beautiful introduction. I'm such a, a fan of yours. I was a fan of yours before I, I got to know you and, and become uh, your friend. And, and I'm so uh, in awe of um, your, your, you inspire me to do my job every single day. So I'm, I'm excited to um, get to speak with you about it. <laughs> oh, the feeling is so mutual. So. Um, before I start every interview, I always kind of like to take a temperature um, and mm. ask how you're feeling today, if you had to say in two words. Very tired. I'm very tired of, um, you know, the last five years of living in America have been really difficult. And as we are speaking today, we're on the second day of the Republican National Convention. Mm-hmm. And it is um, been really disheartening to see um, the extremes to which um, there's a 
you know, a group of people and, and who call themselves Republicans um, who are really there to scare people um, and use just the worst, um, you know, sort of resort to the worst impulses in human behavior to, to, to try and cling to power. And it makes me very worried. Um, and in moments like this, I really have to remind myself of all of the progress that we've done and all of the great things that have come out of the last five years. Um, and, and so I, I have to do, you know how people do like gratitude exercises for yeah. like their lives. I feel like I need to do that for this country and, and particularly <laughs> I think for the world, right? Like this is like a, a, like a gratitude journal every yeah. year. For, like, yeah. Yeah, this is what you did two years ago. Congratulations. <laughs> Good job. You, yes. you chose to move to the U.S. Like you, you are what my um, colleague lovingly calls an American implant. Oh, yes, um, absolutely. I, I did choose to move to the U.S. seven years ago now, which is, uh, you know, it's been a while. Um, and, and I never thought I, I would end up I truly did not think I would ever get a job there. Um, I was like, I'm going to go, I'm going to fail. I'm going to come back to Montreal and like, you know, continue my life. Um, and, and I've been very uh, grateful to be able to uh, work in media and, and be, uh, you know, one of the many journalists covering um, this sort of historical moment in American history. <laughs> um, you also yeah. approached media in a very unique way. I mean, you like, you know, a lot of journalists I talk to say like, no, I can't really talk about my, you know, opinions about the current mm. climate. It's not appropriate. Or I can't. And you've actually kind of gone in the other direction where you've said the media is accountable, that, you know, yeah. platforms are accountable. So as a leader in the media, first, what made you choose to do that? Like what, 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 why was that the approach you took? And then how do you feel right now when it's so polarizing, when, when, you know, people can literally watch one channel or go to one outlet and get yeah. reaffirmed on everything. Like, where do we find media sources that we can trust for that for that truth? Mm. Yeah. Well, for so, so for in terms of my path, I really came into journalism never wanting to be a journalist. I, I was sort of an accidental, uh, you know, writer and journalist. I came the best kind. Sorry. Well, thank you. I mean, it, it ended up being, it's a, we you know when you're coming, when you have a beginner's mind, right. Um, there are so many, you know, sort of benefits to that because you're coming into a world that where you don't know what the rules are exactly. and you don't, no one has told you this is what you do and this is what you don't do. And a lot of industries are, are guided more by informal rules than actual formal rules. Um, and what I found in journalism uh, was that because I hadn't gone to J school, because I hadn't sought out to be a leading voice and, you know, I, I didn't want even kind of seek uh, sort of attention in that way. I, I didn't even, you know, think I was a good writer, uh, but I cared so deeply about feminism and I had you know, earned a, my, I was, you know, do, getting my master's in gender and social policy at the time in London when I came across this news item about the 2012 Olympics and they wanted to force women to wear skirts in uh, female boxing, which was gonna be a discipline for the very first time in 2012. And I 
just got really mad and I got really angry and I decided to basically start this petition and this campaign around this issue and it ended up being successful. And, and, and that was, you know, I wrote an article basically demanding that the International Boxing Association change this decision and, and calling out how sexist it was, but I never envisioned um, putting my master's degree to work in, in journalism because I just, I, you know, sort of like many of us, you look at other people and you look at what they do and you say, well, I can't do that. That's, you know, that's for other people. And th that's really what I thought about journalism. And the, but the more I started to write and the more I, I stopped listening to my colonized mind and, and, you know, my patriarchal brainwashing that uh, I think a lot of women, um, you know, deal with, which is, you know, this like constant imposter syndrome and like constant gaslighting that makes you think that you are not deserving <laughs> uh, of opportunities that, that come your way. Um, once I sort of got over that, I realized that through my writing and through journalism was how I could make the biggest impact with the ideas and the changes that I wanted to see uh, happen in society. Um, and, 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 and the, you know, the idea of objectivity, I think is so interesting because I remember I would go on these panels with these, you know, very fancy people. And um, they would t ask me about that, uh, ask me about objectivity. And, and, and I just, when I came into media in 2013 in New York, like media, like objectivity meant what meant white male cisgendered non-disabled right uh, wealthy perspective. It, there was no objectivity, and a lot of what I was doing was actually taking quote unquote objective headlines right objective. Uh, you know, one of the first pieces that I wrote that got uh, actual response from the New York Times, which was like three weeks into my internship and in you know in New York media, and I like no one knew who I was, no one knew what Mike.com was. Uh, and the New York Times re responded to an article that I'd written because I was criticizing this room for debate uh, series that they had around female leadership. Mm -hmm. And the headline in 2013, like we're not talking like 1971, was can women lead? <laughs> and I just was like, you know, as you I'm sure are right now, it totally incensed. And I was like, this is not, that is, you know, that's an, that's just the most ridiculous headline I've ever seen in my life. Okay. And so I would just write about these things and, and, and then they, it would get a, a response. And I think, you know, a lot of women were writing at the time uh, about and criticizing, you know, there was a rise in social media and, and digital media was having uh, a real moment. And so there was a, you know, a democratization of the media occurring, people of color were criticizing newsrooms and saying, you have 2%, you know, black, uh, black writers in a newsroom. How are you covering, you know, issues, all issues, but particularly issues of racism when it's written by white people? How are you covering reproductive justice in America when most, most of the experts that you have on do not have uteruses and are not affected by these laws? So, you know, the, the, in, in women's studies, you learn that there is no such thing as objectivity. There is subjectivity. We all have a perspective. We all are subjects and we all see the world in a specific way. And to assert that somehow there is a perspective that, 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 that has no perspective 
<laughs> is to confuse um, the standard white male perspective as being the objective perspective with actual objectivity, which is truth. It's about truth. It's about telling the truth. Um, and and th there are not many perspectives on the truth. There is one truth. And to your point right now, and particularly in America, but you know, this is happening all over the world, there, there is no longer one truth. Um, and, and that's what we're grappling with as a, not just as a media ecosystem, but I think, I think as a society. Oh, I agree wholeheartedly with that. I love, you know, we had, um, I had Layla Said from Me and White Supremacy on the show, who is a good friend, and, and yeah. she mentioned that same uh, reality. And it's something that I think many of us, you know, women, um, visibly, you know, visible minority women, black mm -hmm. women, indigenous women, mm -hmm. but women who, you know, people who are often othered, um, you know, yeah. people who, who have different sexualities, people who come from different backgrounds, feel every day, right? Like if you talk, yeah. for example, about women's rights, oh, you're a woman, so you're thinking about it from your perspective. Whereas if a white man talks about it, he's being objective. And you're kind yeah. of like, wait a second, what? And it's the same, you know, if yeah. I talk about Islam, people are always like, no, you're, you're kind of confusing this with your own personal experience. Mm. I always found it so incredible that white men were the only ones that really had the privilege of yeah. not having to speak for everyone, but also getting the mic for everything. Yeah. It was an incredibly, so, so I appreciate you pointing that out because I think oftentimes we hide a lot of conversations under this kind of like secret veil of objectivity that just doesn't exist. Yeah. It never happens. 100%. It shapes our media and it definitely shapes our politics. Mm -hmm. so I, I do wonder though, you know, you, you have been working in media now for the better part of five years. You're a leader in this space, um, over five years, for seven years now. Mm. You're a leader in this space and you're somebody who really has pushed the envelope on conversations that other people aren't necessarily prepared to have. You've publicly said, listen, you know, when we're talking about um, intersectional feminism, then, you know, white women need to get out of the way and amplify women of color. You've publicly said that, you know, if we're talking about politics, we need to really look at the intersection of politics and negligence and how this is actually leading to the loss of life, right? And, mm -hmm. and you've been very courageous in some of the statements that you've made. One of the ones that I've found the most compelling is when you said, listen, gender equality isn't good, just good for women. It saves men's lives. And the example of how we've responded to COVID, the COVID pandemic Mm -hmm. Good one. Can you unpack that a little bit? I would love to. <laughs> I, I find myself completely <laughs> baffled that, I mean, look, I, I, yeah, I spent the last four years uh, writing um, a book about men called For the Love of Men. And, and a lot of people kind of looked at me sideways and were like, wait, you're a feminist writer. You talk about women all the time. You, 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 are a women's rights advocate, why are you writing about men? And I said, because it's not because I don't care about women, it's because I want, <laughs> I want, it's because I deeply care about women that I'm writing about men. Because in the same way that racism um, is caused and needs to be solved by white people, um, so does sexism. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about sexism though, um, that you know, I, I think you could, I, I would argue racism hurts white people as well. And I'm not, you know, I didn't invent that. Um, there's a whole book called Dying of Whiteness that I highly recommend. 
uh, everyone reads, which is, you know, lays out all of the ways that white people have been hurt by racism in America, particularly, and how it's been used basically, uh, you know, to convince people to vote against their own interests uh, when it comes to healthcare, when it comes to gun control, when it comes to so many things that actually endanger their lives. Um, but, but when it comes to men and masculinity, the benefits are so, so potent, right? Like I just, I have a degree in women's studies. I have a master's degree in gender and social policy. I've spent, you know, a decade studying, research, researching, uh, writing, you know, about, you know, taking in information about gender in a, you know, in a really uh, devoted kind of way. And I had never come across the data that I found when I was writing this book, mm-hmm. finding that, you know, countries that have more gender equality, um, aren't just okay for men, they are good for men. Men live longer. Men have, are less likely to be divorced in those countries. Men are less likely to, to commit suicide, right? There's an actual, you know, feminism and gender equality is a buffer for male suicide because in societies where women and men do not share um, economic freedom and therefore power uh, and responsibility, if there is an economic downturn or a recession or a global virus that takes over the world and means that you cannot work in the same way that you worked before. In countries that are more feminist, where women are equal to men, you share that burden. And men don't, you know, the concept of masculinity also changes because then you're not the provider, you're a provider or you're a co-provider, right? So there's just, you know, and the same thing with parenting. And I just couldn't kind of just, I couldn't believe the data I was coming across in, when, when it came to this issue. And the way that uh, I start the book is that I wrote a pretty controversial statement, which I, I wanted people to open the book and I wanted you to either know this is your book or to like, if this, if you don't want to get on board, then don't even buy it. Like, don't even, don't even buy this book. It's kind of like on a first date where you're like, this is what makes me crazy. Either you're like on board or you can walk away right now. I'm not going to waste your time. So I started the book saying the biggest threat to humankind is our current definition of masculinity. And I really fundamentally believe that. And I argue you know, in the, you can read the book and see if I do a good job of arguing that, but I give a lot of evidence and I give a lot of data to back that up. And no, COVID. I say, I read the book. But yeah. And when you said okay. you put a controversial statement, I was like trying to rack my brain. I was like, wait, what, what statement are you talking about? I don't. Well, don't, there you go. Not depending on who. Yes. Yeah. No, and, I and, yes. Exactly. And that's the concept of subjectivity and objectivity, right? To who is this controversial? Um, Not to you, not to, uh, you know, probably a lot of women, uh, probably not a lot of gay men, uh, right? A lot of people have been have been hurt by this definition of masculinity uh, firsthand, and therefore that's not a controversial statement to them. But I guess for some people, you know, and I got a lot of uh, sort of pushback or, or, you know, people demanding I I explain that and and then COVID happens and it is it is just the clearest unfortunate example of the ways that our definitions of masculinity are killing all of us right so we first of all are seeing in the leadership of countries so countries that are headed by women uh I believe the number is are you know twice as likely to have or or sorry in countries headed by men they are twice as many deaths so if your country is headed by a woman you're you know have half the amount of deaths um that are uh that we're seeing 
in countries that are led by men. And this was a research or that looked at 194 countries. This isn't just like using five countries or 10 countries. Like it was a pretty, uh, pretty hardcore study. Um, and what they found, you know, and, 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 and what we saw was, you know, countries like America, countries like Brazil, which had leaders that were poster child children basically for the definition of masculinity that is what we call some people will call toxic masculinity um, i prefer to use idealized masculinity or faux masculinity because i think it's a fake kind of masculinity this idea that you have to never ask questions that you never ask for directions that you must be dominant that you must you know there's a winner and there, there's a loser and you're you have to be the winner um, this kind of thinking and this kind of ideal of masculinity, the leaders that ascribe to that leadership model and that personality model really have handled the crisis the, the least well. Um, mm. And then we started seeing all of this data that I, I wrote about men in masks before we had the data because I was seeing <laughs> the way that, that Trump particularly was refusing to wear a mask in public, was uh, mocking Joe Biden for wearing a mask. He, uh, you know, was uh, reported uh, by a White House reporter having said that it mask would make him look weak. And that's, that's why he wasn't wearing them. And I knew that because I knew the data on uh, men are less likely to wear, to wear seatbelts. Men are less likely to wear sunscreen. Men are, uh, I was a lifeguard growing up in Montreal. Drowning is almost a uniquely male experience. 80% of drowning victims are male. Mm -hmm. And that is not because they're less good swimmers. They're e they women and men have equal aquatic abilities. Men are just less likely to wear life jackets. Men are more likely to take more risks and think that they're invincible, right? It comes back to this, this, this idealized notion of protection is weakness. Protection yeah. is feminine. So going out into the world without a mask, not caring about your other people and yourself, by the way, um, is, is, is the manly thing to do. And so now we're seeing men are more likely to die from COVID, which is, uh, you know, according to, you know, different researchers, a mix of nurture and nature. So there, there might be a biological component, but there's also a social component. Men are less, you know, more likely to, to die from this disease and less likely to protect themselves from it. And we, Again, there's, uh, you know, data that even goes back to the 1918 flu uh, Spanish flu epidemic that shows that the government was particularly interested in targeting men in terms of wearing face coverings and, and hygiene rules and trying to paint it as patriot, like, you know, being doing that, that that was a patriotic thing to do because they were seeing that men in the same way you know, so long ago, 1918, <laughs> and now we find ourselves in another, you know, century with the same, you know, sort of issue um, with a different virus, but, you know, same shit, basically. Um, yeah. Sorry, I'm, if that counts as swearing, but bleep me. Oh, you're allowed um, to swear. Okay, great. Um, but, but, but yeah, <laughs> like, we're just kind of seeing history repeat itself, and we're seeing this urgent conversation around masculinity. But is it urgent? Like, do you really feel like people are taking it seriously? Because, so I, you know, when you said, you know, oh, in 2013, the, the headline was, can women lead? Um, mm -hmm. I actually, the reason I chuckled was because it's 2020. And honestly, I could see that headline on a major yeah. paper tomorrow. Yeah. I wouldn't even have yes. to imagine it. Right now, as they're talking about women's leadership in COVID, the amount of surprise that is in mm -hmm. every single one of those stories, like, and can you believe yeah. 
Right. 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 It's kind of like, yeah, but why, you know what I mean? Like this is what the data shows and you're supposed to be this impartial objective, you know, hypothetically, Mm. you're supposed to be pointing me to the data and yet you are infusing it with the skepticism of like, oh, we're so surprised. So do you really think people see this as an urgent conversation or more like, oh, boys will be boys. Of course they don't want to wear their masks. It's not Mm. comfortable. Yeah. I don't think it's seen as an urgent conversation at all. And again, that I write this in the book, but I just, once you, it's like the sort of in gender studies, we we call it like there's these feminist click moments. Um, And it's like putting on a pair of glasses for the very first time and being able to see And you just cannot unsee it. And you can't, once they're on, you can't take them off. That's how I feel about, about masculinity. Once you look at all of the ways that, you know, men are being harmed by this, men are dying of this, and they're killing the people that they love, right? You're not wearing a mask because you don't want, you know, to look like a P word, which is literally something that this Trump supporter, um, Marine, tweeted out of a Delta um, flight. Oh, I um, saw that. I was like, got banned for life. Yeah. Thank you, Delta. I'm literally only flying with you from now on. Um, That was the best. But yeah, saying I'm not a P word uh, and and, and and not, you know, basically proudly not wearing a face covering in a global pandemic on an airplane. Um, That is that is kill God. That that might kill you, and that might kill the people around you. You are killing your community. You're killing. I mean, when we think about a, an issue like domestic violence, we always think about it as a woman's issue. Um, and first of all, there are men who are victims of domestic violence as well. But even when you think about domestic violence as an issue that we tackle, in most countries, and most, and you do so much of this work, Allah, like. When you go, when I've spoke, you know, just had informal conversations with different governments or different policy initiatives, I say, okay, so you have all this this money dedicated to helping women who are survivors. It's amazing programs. What are you doing for men? What are you doing with men to curb the problem that they are causing? And I don't think that we often think about this just the mal like the social malady of masculinity mm-hmm. that makes you not just hurt a woman makes you hurt a woman that you love mm-hmm. right the domestic violence and intimate partner violence and sexual violence you know rape in most cases is not the boogeyman in the uh you know alleyway it's your it's it's a guy she knows exactly but that's when it happens right so it's a partner it's your boyfriend it's your husband it's your ex it's your and and that there is something so fundamentally right twisted that you're not just hurting a stranger you're hurting the people that you love exactly and and i think that that requires a really high level of examination and i think that one of the reasons why we don't realize the urgency of this conversation and that men particularly do not seem to many of them do not seem very interested in having this conversation i mean i am a woman and i wrote a book about men because i didn't see this book exist in the world and i would have loved a man to write it so i could write about something else and do something else with my life um but 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 i think that there's a lot of discomfort around this conversation because it is so twisted Mm -hmm. that the that, that 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 the 
psychology behind male violence in our society is, is, you know, requires a very strong and long look in the mirror that a lot of people don't want to, don't want to take. That's why the conversation about racism is, is so, you know, uh, delayed, right? That white people, you know, have to look at themselves in the mirror. So Liz, and I say, how, you know, how did I create this? And, I, and why am I uncomfortable with a conversation about this? Exactly. I think it's so important what you, what you were mentioning right now about kind of this, almost this, this idea that it's sexual violence or intimate partner violence is the boogeyman. We always, we often talk about the fact that language is important, right? And yeah. language matters. And when somebody says like, oh, she was raped or she was abused, right. it often removes a lot of that accountability, all of the accountability from the abuser right? Mm -hmm. Because it didn't just happen to her. Somebody did that to her or to him. And so when we talk about the power of language, and and you did this a lot in your book, right? And I I, I love the the definition of idealized masculinity. Um, But we talk about the power of language. And we also talk about the necessity to connect some of these issues. So when we look, for example, at sexual violence, we know statistically that a lot of, um, a lot of, a lot of young men who choose to commit mass shootings have histories of domestic violence. Looking at this, you know, not just in nature of, okay, well, you can protect yourself and you can protect your own family, but beyond that, it is critical for society for us to be having this conversation. So how do we change language or use different language to highlight the importance of having and the urgency of having this conversation? Yeah, I think I love that you brought up language because I, I I see us having a lot of reckoning around language when it comes to, uh, you know, police brutality and police shootings and killings. I, I was just listening to a story this morning about, you know, a, a, a uh, officer involved shooting. Uh, right, which is what they call a police officer, officer mm-hmm. shooting a civilian, and yeah. and that's what we should call it. It's not a. It's it's like a. The, is the shooting is the shoot the shooting involved? Right, the the, the, the shooting is the subject um, mm-hmm. instead of the officer being the subject. The, the officer pulled the trigger. There isn't a third. You know, the the, the gun <laughs> isn't a person. Right? Yeah, the gun did not um, itself. Yeah, it, exactly. So I, I think we're having this kind of uh, really crucial conversation when it comes to, to language around race. We are also having it when it comes to the media, coming back, you know, circling back to your first question around how do we report on lies? And uh, I think it took the media a really long time to stop just repeating the things that the president would say that were, that, that, that were you know, complete lies. And, mm-hmm. and it's, again, during COVID, we've seen everything has elevated itself. Like the conversation around masculinity and the urgency of that conversation, I think has become that much more visible to those of us who, you know, care. Um, and, and I think we've seen the same thing happen with the media and COVID where this was a media ecosystem that would take the president live whenever he wanted them to take him live. And we had hearings and briefings every day where the president went on and got free airtime to not just, you know, rant and, and, and say lies about, you know, what governors were doing and why they were doing it, but also to, to, to tell lies about, about, you know, cures about drinking bleach, uh, you know, really 
things that yeah, it should never be said uh, and ever, but during a global pandemic or reach that, that point. And last night, uh, the first day of the RNC, um, the, Repub the Republican National Convention uh, happened and MSNBC actually cut to a doctor. And um, because, because even during the RNC, even during a pre-taped segment where the lies, you know, could have been just taken out, they, uh, you know, the president was, 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 I don't even want to repeat the things that he was saying, but uh, really stating falsehoods about, about a virus that has now killed in the United States, 170,000 people and counting. So, um, so we're, we're, yeah, we're seeing uh, not just media ecosystems, but I think all of us are being challenged to notice the language that we use and how that language um, then affects the way that we understand the world and understand who's a victim, to understand who's the hero, to understand who's responsible, right? Who's uh, held accountable. And I, I, I really, you know, when it comes to gender, I, I think your point is exactly right. Jackson Katz talks a lot about this. There's a viral TED talk that uh, really, again, I encourage everyone to, to watch in which he shows, you know, yeah, she was raped. Mm -hmm. It's he raped her or yeah. she was, you know, impregnated. Uh, he, yeah, he impregnated her. Uh, like she didn't just, she didn't do it. Um, yeah. and, and the way that we talk about anger too, right? And AOC talked about this in uh, one of her Instagram stories after she was called a fucking bitch by a sitting member of Congress. Mm -hmm. um, how the media was framing often her and him, they were, they, they were using photos in which he looked super passive and she looked very angry and had her mouth open and had her finger yeah. out pointing. And he was the assailant. That was the same with, he, remember, yeah. remember when um, Kamala Harris was asking Brett Kavanaugh stuff and yes. the media was like, Kamala Harris is so angry. And she's like sitting there calmly and yeah. Brett Kavanaugh's like yelling and like saliva yeah. coming out of his face. And mm -hmm. they were like, my gosh, this woman is angry. Yeah. <laughs> And, and it's, no, we're, I'm, and also like, I'm reacting to you. Like it's, again, it's a, it's a, to be a woman in America and to be a woman in the world is to be gaslit. Just, just from the moment you are, you know, out of utero um, to, to that your reaction uh, to a broken world is you are meant to think that you are broken when you are reacting to a broken world. Even if Kamala had, been raised her voice. Brett mm -hmm. Kavanaugh, you know, has a, a, a very credible um, witness saying that he is a rapist and he is being ushered to the highest, one of the highest positions that you can have in the world as a Supreme Court justice. Mm -hmm. It should be hard. <laughs> you should be asked some tough questions. What's um, been really interesting to me when we do talk about things like feminism or, or you know, racial equality, um, you know, kind of xenophobia of all forms is a conversation I've often had with friends when we talk about like what success looks like um, for something like gender equality. And something, you know, I've gone back to frequently and colleagues of mine is for a woman to be able to show her full range of emotions and to be fully human with all the nuance that it brings um, without it being used against her. And of course, that's kind of mm -hmm. layered, you know, if you're a woman of color, if you're a black woman, yeah. if you're an indigenous woman, that is layered in, in multiple ways. Which brings me to my next question. And it's something that, it's something I've personally wrestled with a lot. 
I know so many of my colleagues and friends have wrestled with, and I know you call yourself a feminist. You define yourself as one, um, and, and you are an incredible champion for women. And I know so many colleagues and friends who are incredible champions for women, but say, you know what, I don't feel like feminism represents me as mm -hmm. a woman of color, as mm -hmm. uh, you know, a transgender person, as uh, a woman of faith. You know, I just don't feel like it represents me that I am that I am included, that I can lead in that space. I don't see mm -hmm. myself there. What mm -hmm. do you say to those women? I mean, I, for, for one, you know, for, for starters, um, completely you know, respect and respect that decision. And I think everyone should have the right to define themselves in the way that they want in the world. That, that actually is the goal of feminism, mm -hmm. uh, right? It's, it's, it's not that we are uh, forcing you to be a certain way. It's not, you know, I think feminism uh, from another perspective is, is misunderstood by uh, sometimes conservatives will tell me, well, they are against me because I'm a housewife or I choose to be a stay-at-home mom. And, and actually, yeah, if, if someone is claiming that they're a feminist and telling you that you, you cannot uh, stay at home with your kids and that's a less valuable use of your time, um, that's not feminism, uh, in my opinion. Uh, if a feminist is uh, telling you that a white woman's um, perspective is more important or more valuable or worth more money um, or should have uh, you know, precedence over a woman of color's opinion, I don't believe that that is feminism. But I understand um, that there are many people who feel uh, disaffected and who, who, who don't feel included or who don't, you know, want anything to do with the movement. And I, uh, yeah, I, 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 you know, my, I'm not an evangelist, you know, I'm, I'm not like on a mission to, um, especially when it comes to labels and uh, identity, like, you know, I'm not interested in, in imposing my, my identity and my choices on, onto anyone else's. Mm -hmm. um, I also think that, you know, Feminism is a big movement and like every movement, you know, there are feminists that I, you know, maybe we both decide to call ourselves feminists. So we have that in common. Um, but the way that we view certain issues is, is very different. And I've been to, fem uh, you know, women's conferences, uh, conservative women. I've had a lot of uh, conversations, particularly, you know, in the lead up to 2016, when I was on the campaign trail with conservative women who, believed and claimed the feminist title and and I could not you know disagree with them more on on pretty much everything mm -hmm. so so but but that, that being said I think it is essential for feminism and for feminists um to be curious um and to have conversations with people who who you're talking about, you know, and, and, and regardless of the reason that they feel um, excluded from, from, from the movement, I think it's, it's our, it's, it's the job of any movement to, you know, the, the goal is to execute an agenda, but is I think even more important to, to grow, to, to, to grow uh, in terms of numbers. And that's always been my view when it comes to the, you know, issue of masculinity as well. I never understood. How do you think the feminist movement does that? How do you think like 
you know, what voices are we not hearing? What conversations are we not having that we need to be having to ensure gender equality, to actually have, to have everyone at the table? Yeah. How do we do I, that? Well, first of all, I've said this often, but, you know, feminism shouldn't be a speakeasy. It should be a block party. So it should be <laughs> a place, right, that you don't need to, like a certain dress code or like look a certain way or speak a certain way. And like you might not know the, 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 the terms and, you know, uh, and, and, and it shouldn't be in the way that I have sometimes I feel like progressives uh, particularly have been not inclusive to people who don't speak the right language or don't, uh, again, just ascribe to a certain code of morality or ethics that we've determined makes you a a quote unquote progressive or feminist. Um, So I've been very upset when I, when I've been in rooms and, and, and that have been, I mean, first of all, I I refuse to do all white panels. Uh, I think, that is just, especially in the case of, you know, a feminist conference or a feminist event, um, when it has happened to me, I have felt uh, very upset and I've uh, voiced that concern. I think that is, you know, the responsibility of, of anyone, again, whether you're white to do it, you know, and when it comes to white panels, I think it's men's responsibility to do it when there's no female presence on a panel. Um, and so I, I think it's our, and, and I think it's, you know, white people do not often realize that their comfort has always been prioritized. No matter what room they've been in, no matter where in the world, really, pretty much they've been, if you are white, your comfort has been the priority. And I, uh, the world, the world and every system that exists in today's, you know, global economy, global politics has been shaped for and by white people. For and by, exactly. And so one of the things, you know, Rachel Ricketts is an amazing social justice advocate and she does these amazing spiritual retreats and, you know, doing that retreat with her was one of the most powerful experiences in my life because she starts off by saying basically like, it's a, you know, a mixed group and, and there's, you know, people of color, there are white people who participate. And she said, she starts off and she says the, the number one rule and pretty much the only rule um, is that white people, your comfort is not going to be the priority. People of color, the people in color of, of color in the room, they're going to be the priority. And when she said that, I kind of, you know, I was like, okay. And then like, I experienced it and I was like, okay, <laughs> like, okay. Right. And we you know, often hear about this, about, you know, privilege is the invisible knapsack. And, and um, it's, you know, it's kind of like my friend, Rachel Sklar, who's also Canadian, says, you know, privilege is like oxygen. Usually you'll only notice it once it's gone. So yeah. people notice when they lose their privilege, like in that room, when it's like, oh, you're not going to be the priority here. But I had, uh, you know, really, I, and, and I'll admit to it, I never thought about that. I, I maybe knew it theoretically, but I'd never been like, oh, right every single tiny little way. And, you know, we talk about microaggressions, which I think is such a, I don't really love that term because I don't think they're micro at all. Uh, mm-hmm. My friend Zerlina Maxwell, who came on our podcast, talked about, you know, when she was in school, um, in college at Duke, she would constantly get ID'd in her own school every week when she go to baseball, I think it was basketball practice. And she would just say like, you know, those are like microaggressions. And, and I just, when she told me that, I was like, that, I, I just, 
that's not a microaggression. You don't belong here is not a microaggression. Yeah. Like asking for your ID that, and, and being constantly questioned on whether you belong in a space or not, regardless of the way that it's done, is not micro. It's so macro. Um, and so I think that when we, I mean, well, yeah, when we build feminist spaces, um, we, sh we have to build them with that in mind, right? We have to build them. I mean, accessibility, I think, is such an important issue that um, I, you know, do my very best to, um, you know, talk about despite the fact that I'm, that I'm not disabled and I don't know what it's like to be disabled um, when you have, uh, you know, feminist events and it's the event isn't even accessible, which is kind of like a new thing now uh, in COVID that things are accessible. There's Zoom links. Uh, all of a sudden, uh, there's an understanding, right, that, uh, that, that people can join online and join in different ways. And so we have an opening up and uh, a really sort of radical accessibility happening right now, um, not just when it comes to, you know, feminist organizing or progressive organizing, but just generally in our society. And I think it's the role of feminism. I think it's the role of uh, progressives. I think it's the role of any human in the world um, to you know, do their best in whatever organization they're in to maintain that level of accessibility and to invest their privilege um, in service of people who don't get to be in the room or the people who don't get to speak in the room. Because as we know, people of color and women uh, will just, you know, get, dis get punished for bringing out, it's like comes back to our issue of, you know, objectivity. If a white guy brings up racism, um, he's going to get like, people are going to like him more. Yeah. Um, if a person of color brings up racism, they might get fired. They might not get the promotion or they're just going to be like, she's just not that, like, she's kind of trouble. Mm -hmm. It has an agenda. She's not that nice. Um, and so it's, it's just, you know, I, I encourage, I mean, this is something that I do. The Invisible Knapsack, it's a, it's a real, you know, academic paper um, that uh, is, I think it's Peggy Ornstein. I, I'm, not, I'm getting her last name correct. Um, but it has a list basically of ways that white privilege uh, particularly, you know, really just operates in our lives. And, and one of them that, and, and I just encourage everyone to read through it. Like I'll, I do it just as a re reminder of all of the ways that, you know, that, that I experience privilege and that I can sort of invested. And, and one of the most striking ones in that list is that, you know, if you're a white person, you can bring up race without people ever seeing you as self-serving. Mm -hmm. And I just think that's a really important thing for white people to remember. Um, and for white women, you know, in the feminist movement to remember. Um, and that, you know, the, the discomfort of bringing up race and, oh, am I going to say it the wrong? Like, it doesn't really matter because you're going to be fine. <laughs> like, the problem is people of color cannot even bring it up. And exactly. so invest your privilege, being, you know? Yeah, it's seen as being kind of self-serving or subjective or victimized. Yes, um, yes. You know, I think it's, it's uh, your comment on microaggressions has kind of stuck with me because when I was younger, I remember people would have trouble saying my name. Mm. And, uh, and I, my mom found out when I was like five and that I was telling them like, sure, you can call me Al. Like if that's easier for you, just well, call me Al. And you know, I, I think you've been to Saskatchewan, right? So there's a very yeah. Um, yeah. desire to, to learn more about my name was non-existent. 
And at home, my mom got so upset because she said the very, the most basic form of respect and dignity is to learn someone's name. Mm -hmm. I thought it was Mm -hmm. a little thing. And so when I hear somebody say like a microaggression, like, oh, you know, and I I get these comments all the time, like your English is really good. You know, where are you from? Or, or, you know, comments about levels of education or my parents or it really does get me to think of of how we've minimized that kind of xenophobia and racism and elitism by calling it a regression like it's just my biggest pet peeves so i'm glad you're me too i just think we it it, um i feel like a republican came up with it like that's how i feel like and they use it yeah somebody who's never heard a comment like that came up with it where they were like oh this one looks like a little because a macro and i've actually had this conversation with colleagues Um, because, you know, in in so many organizations and in in a lot of the development in feminist space, there's these conversations that are so necessary about, um, about, you know, white supremacy within the global development Mm -hmm. space and how it manifests even within the feminist movement and feminist organizations. And it's been interesting because people will be like, yeah, I didn't really hear anything really racist. I mean, like, they didn't say any like words to her or anything. And I'm like, oh, that's what racism is to you. Like this outright blatant act of hate. Otherwise, it's just a microaggression. Mm -hmm. It's just a little thing. She's being sensitive. And I find that infuriating. Infuriating. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, we've been also, it's funny because we've been having the conversation too with, you know, Ibram Kendi, you know, sort of talking about this for years. But I think this summer we've... uh, you know, how to be an anti-racist has become, um, you know, more of an essential read, even more than it was when the book came out. And and he talks about the the confusion that we have about racism too, as uh, individual versus collective. That we think racism is this person, yeah, said the N word. This person, to your point, like used a slur or like said, you know, something o- overtly racist. When we obsess about the, those individual acts, we're actually not, um, you know, examining or, or being in touch with how racism is, is institutionalized. Mm-hmm. And like, and that is much more pernicious, much more, uh, you know, when you talk about the impacts of racism, um, just, just, and, and, and that's where we need to, that's what, that's what we need to focus on. And that focusing on these individual, uh, you know, acts where we, sort of go after one specific person and we, uh, you know, want to sort of, you know, we, we get them fired and we, you know, sort of get accountability when it comes to this one person makes us think that we're solving it and we're not. So it's in, in microaggressions, I think in the same way, it's systemic, right? It's not like this one thing that happened once. It's this one thing that happens all the time. Yeah, all the time, exactly. Yes. So it's this, this constant, yes. you know, you're always, I think, one of the, like, you're always kind of humanizing yourself to, so yeah. I, we can go on this tangent forever, believe me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do, there is one thing that I kind of, this conversation um, really is bringing it, it to the forefront. A good friend of mine is a leading climate uh, change activist. And she, her and I were having a conversation a few years ago about how, you know, people were really beginning to get engaged with climate change. And she's a woman, of, uh, she's a black woman herself. And, you know, she looked at me and she said, you know, it's so interesting. It's easy for people to get engaged with climate change, but not really with women's rights or with mm. racial equity, because the big bad boogeyman is the climate 
Whereas mm-hmm. when it comes to women's rights and racial equity, they'd have to actually look internally and say, mm-hmm. like, okay, wait, I benefit from this society. I mm-hmm. am a parcel of, you know, white supremacy or patriarchy. And so when it comes to, you know, issues like that, and we see it even today, the media gets exhausted, they get fatigued, there's this exciting moment, they oftentimes, unfortunately, um, especially when it came to to a lot of the protests, they look oftentimes for the headlines that will get them the most clicks. Mm. And in those moments, as someone in the media, how, like, how do we create a media landscape or an information landscape, however that looks, that is more kind of compassionate, that is more attentive, mm-hmm. that, it, that, that asks kind of not just the urgent questions, but the important questions. It goes, mm-hmm. it doesn't get distracted. You know, how, how do we create that landscape? What do we need to do differently as consumers to help people within the media space create that landscape? That's a great, great question. Um, we are seeing a me- yeah, media landscape that is incentivized uh, pretty uniquely based on views and based on eyeballs. And one thing that I have been really trying to do is do journalism in a, using a different metric <laughs> of success. And my metric of success is um, mental health. So I, and I love that you use the word compassionate because that was what I started realizing, especially, you know, in this current administration in, in, in the States, because yeah, I started being a reporter in 2013. So I'd been, uh, you know, in, in the field of journalism a little bit before Trump came into the, uh, you know, spotlight and in, in the way that he has. And I began to see a real crumbling of people's, you know, mental health and, and, and well-being generally. And I was seeing the news becoming the cause of a lot of anxiety, depression, and political apathy, which I think, you know, that all of those things are bad. Um, I think as an activist, I am just a person in the world that loves working with other people towards common goals of, you know, bettering the world. That really scared me. And I started being uh, really obsessed with Mr. Rogers <laughs> and the way that Mr. Rogers really uh, challenged uh, the you know media ecosystem to think about children's uh, children's TV and and television and movies um, not just as yeah how many kids are watching and how much money are we making but like what are what is the effect on children and their mental health and and he also did something I think is so important and I and I think that as journalists we need to do which is like he was like children are better than this children do not need to watch violence in order to keep watching we don't need to show them uh you know two people at each other's throats guns and and you know and and I quote him in the book actually because he says there's a you know two boys and I'm gonna uh, butcher it because my brain is a jello uh right now uh <laughs> since COVID I feel like I just don't remember things that I, I should remember. Don't even you know? I barely yeah. remember the day, half of the day. Same. Yeah, year, all of that. So, but he basically says there's, you know, there's nothing more dramatic than seeing two boys work out their anger together and work out their vulnerability together. That is much more dramatic than two boys, you know, shooting at each other. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that the same applies to media. I think that, um, unfortunately, we think lesser 
of our readers. We think lesser of our viewers. And we, and I'm saying we, because I am in, in the media, but I, you know, individually uh, don't believe this. I, I, I think that there's a belief that we need to sensationalize in order for people to keep watching. We need to have a juicy headline for people to click into the story. And I believe that people are better than that. I believe that people are smarter than that. And that's the kind of journalism that, that I am, am really passionate about. And it's a school of journalism that's, that's actually called solution-based journalism. Um, and there's a whole institute that is uh, devoted to it. And, and to, I'm an avid reader. It's, it's an amazing website too, by the way. And you can see all kinds of you know, really positive stories from all over the world. And by positive, I don't mean, you know, a cat got rescued from, you know, a tree by a squirrel or whatever, like these, you know, or a cat playing the piano, whatever, the, there's, al there's always a cat um, in these, you know, feel good stories. I'm, I'm talking about, you know, um, a, um, you know, breakthrough when it comes to abortion and a, you know, doctor who figured out a way to do it with a pill so that in the era of COVID particularly, where women cannot get to, uh, and, and, and people who need abortions cannot get to their, to their clinic, that there's a different way to go about it, that there, there are, you know, solutions all over the place happening, as we know, in mostly female-led countries uh, mm -hmm. that have figured out a way to bring uh, children back to school, that have figured out a way to ensure that people are not, uh, you know, going hungry and unemployed in a pandemic. Exactly. So it comes it's, down to... Yes. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. It, it, I mean, ex exactly. So I think that what we forget that we, you know, the framing of stories is really important and that we don't need to be, uh, to, to, to make people sad or angry. Um, and we don't need to focus on the negativity. We can actually focus on the solutions. And I think just create better stories and make people feel less terrible about the world that they live in. I, I think it's, I think that sums it up so perfectly, this, this notion that it really does come down to just ensuring that people have dignified lives, right? Like that's what yes. it's in every moment. It shouldn't take a pandemic for us to actually look around and say, okay, how can we be compassionate and empathetic towards one another, but how do we create systems that institutionalize that, right? So that it doesn't come down to like, oh, Liz is a nice person, Liz is anti-racist, but more, oh, you can't be racist in this community. You can't be racist mm. in this system. You will not be rewarded for it, which is yeah. fortunately the opposite of what we have now. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions that I ask every guest. Um, and they're usually my favorite questions, I will be honest, because the amount of creativity and, and, and to be super honest, the amount of books I've been recommended or ideas that I've gone and researched or documentaries that I've watched um, has, has been extraordinary. But Great. my first question for you is if you had to bring any one thing to the table, to this community, it can be a book, an idea, a documentary, a song, a person, literally anything, a food, um, <laughs> <laughs> what, would that, what would that be and why? To any table? To this table, to this community. To, our, to like our, our, the community I live in right now? 
No, to the community of listeners that are with us. Oh, right of now. listeners of your okay, this community. Okay, amazing. Um, this community. <laughs> yes, our community. So, of course, thank you for including me. I, I, I don't want to assume that I'm, 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 uh, you know, that I'm deserving of that honor. So, I appreciate it. <laughs> oh, are you kidding me? Everyone's part of the community. What did you say? Oh. That it's a block party, not a like cookout, or I don't even remember what the other. Yeah. Was. I've never been invited to the other examples. So. <laughs> <laughs> um. Oh my God, I have so many things I want to talk about uh, and, uh, and then I would want to share. Um, let me think of the best, one of my favorite things. Um, I mean, recently, it's so hard. It's like a book, a documentary. I mean, I um, highly recommend everyone go watch Immigration Nation on Netflix right now. That is the most, that is the last thing I watched um, it's a documentary about ICE and how they, ICE is a very bad uh, organization in the United States that was. Uh, that your academic? You're like, yeah, I'm it's very bad. bad. It's very bad. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. If it had two words, like at the beginning of like a temp check, it, they would say <laughs> we're very bad. Uh, those are the two words. So they, it was an, you know, an institution that was invented out of thin air in 2003 in the wake of uh 9-11 and this uh, rising Islamophobia and fear of others that was, uh, I don't, you know, need to, I'm sure explain to this community what that, all of the horrible things that that led to, but one of them was the creation of this uh, immigration police, basically, that uh, are just really uh, doing the worst uh, violations of human rights, I, I think, uh, out in the open, uh, just systematically in the United States and are and using taxpayer funder. Like with Sorry? full permission. I was saying it and, yes. and then, then it's it's with full validation, permission, yes. financing, resourcing, support mm -hmm. of of the government and, and mm -hmm. oftentimes the silence of, of, of the, the community. Yes. And although it has been worse under Trump, um, no president has deported uh, you know, more people than uh, President Obama did um, in his two years in office, in his uh, two mandates in office. And so mm -hmm. it's, it's uh, you know, definitely a problem that has been worsened <clears throat> under a, a Republican administration that is uh, just operates in, in, in uh, traffics and so much cruelty. Uh, but it's also something, yeah, that, that has gone on in the United States for, you know, 15 plus years. And so uh, it's a five-part series. It is, uh, you know, definitely get your Kleenex and get ready to um, be moved to uh, tears more than once, but it is a indispensable, like, you know, I think I tweeted, like, can as many people watch Immigration Nation as Tiger King uh, mm -hmm. in quarantine? Uh, we would have a, you know, a very different society and a different kind of uh, mobilization around this this horrible violation of human rights that, that, that that's happening at the southern border and um, and the people who are complicit in it and and the way that you know a lot of people are comparing things to the Nazis and comparing you know Trump to Hitler and there's you know some unique similarities but you know it's in, in human psychology we we know these studies right where if you tell someone to do something, if, if, a, if a position of authority tells you to, right, like give an electric shock to someone until they die, um, most people will do it. And, you know, we listen to figures of authority. Um, and it is, 
you, you sort of see that really the psychology of that operating with these officers who clearly know that what they're doing is wrong, but they are you know, absolving themselves of any responsibility because, well, I don't make the rules. And the more people say that, you know, the more disempowered we are making ourselves and each other Mm -hmm. because we do make the rules. Mm -hmm. We do elect those people and they work for us. Exactly. Yeah. We pay their salaries. Yes, exactly. And so it's your money (laughs) and it's your vote. And it's the most precious thing in the world to remember the, not just the responsibility, you know, we often talk about the responsibility and, you know, but it's a right and it's a privilege and it's important um, to remember how much power you have as a citizen of the world. Exactly. No, I'm, I'm, I, I have that now on my list. I've actually seen a couple of the episodes, but have not gone through it all. And uh, yeah. And the last one is like, you know, anyway, the the last one is like gut punch. It's, it's, it's just beautifully, you know, uh, the it, it, it's it's a, a you know they they did it really well and it and it you know every episode just examines a different uh, form of cruelty in, in the system and it's worth watching the whole thing no i'm 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 yeah. grateful that you um have recommended that and I, I do hope everybody watches it and comes back i think after watching it with what are some solutions what, what can we do differently? What yeah. do we need to do? Aside from vote, aside from protest, aside from stand up, aside from what actions do we have as citizens um, in states, you know, that, that might not be um, doing the right thing, be it the U.S. or around the world where we, mm. can, we can speak up and say something different or we can, we can actively yeah. run for election. We can mm-hmm. own companies. We can, you know, create the money to determine where it goes. I think, you know, I think it's incredibly powerful for us to start saying, okay, so yeah, it's part of my problem. How can I be part of that yeah. solution? Yeah. So Liz, I have two more questions for you. The first is what does being at the table mean to you? Listening. <laughs> I think, I think that's just so important uh, that if we were raised to, you know, that, that listening would be something that we really value as a society. Um, you know, there's often introverts get really annoyed because extroverts are so glamorized in our society. And I, I'm a, I'm actually, I'm, I'm an ambivert. So I'm a weird mix of both, but so I, I understand both sides of that issue, but, but I think that we don't, value yeah like active listening like really listening to someone mm-hmm. um not just waiting for them to be done so that you can say what you want to say and um yeah I, I think listening is such a I I feel such a you know privilege to to get to listen to so many different people in my in my fields of of work and and how that just ex- yeah it's it, it's really an honor to for me to get to do that. And I think that when we look at the world and when we look at, again, these sort of visions and these ideals of leadership, we really don't, you know, listening can almost be, 
invisibilized. Is that a word? Um, it becomes invisible. It can become a word. Don't worry about it. <laughs> it's a word. Let's just, it's just, it's 2020. Like, who cares? Like nothing matters. Um, <laughs> we're just making up words. It, it, it like, right, right. Like listening is seen as a passive act when mm -hmm. it is just such an active and, 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 and crucial act of collaboration mm -hmm. and communication. So I, um, yeah, and, 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 you know, coming back to, yeah, who, who are the leaders that we elect and who, what do we view as a leader? Often we, I think, again, with these, you know, faulty definitions of masculinity, we believe that, right, like the most confident person in the room is the loudest person in the room. Exactly. When confidence is, as we know, loud, uh, sorry, yeah, uh, insecurity is loud and confidence is actually quiet. Like talk to the person you, right? Like, it's like your amazing question of like, who are we not listening from? Who is not at the table? Uh, and who do we need to hear from? And how do we find them? And how do we bring them to the table? Exactly, so that's my last question for you. How do, like, how do you invite others to the table? That's a really good question. It almost, it, I don't know why it makes me, like I feel really emotional when you ask that. And I'm like, I know you can't see me, but I have, tears welling up in my eyes because I just, um, I, I feel like there are so many people who, I, I think one of the greatest social ills and one of the greatest sources of suffering in our world actually comes down to that. Mm -hmm. That a lot of people that don't feel like they're invited, don't feel like they're wanted, don't feel like they're seen even if they're there, and don't get heard even if they show up. And I think that ensuring that people feel included and feel important and feel like their life matters and what they say matters is one of the most revolutionary things that we can do for other people. So whether that is ensuring that there's a Zoom link, that there are subtitles, that there's an interpreter uh, for people who cannot hear, for people who cannot see, for people who cannot physically get to a convention hall or physically attend a conference, physically get on the stage, right? Like it's you know, speaking of microaggressions, like, you know, sometimes it's one little step, <laughs> but that one little step being there everywhere you go is not micro. Mm -hmm. That is every, right. That is macro. And that is, you don't belong here. And we're going to make it hard, harder for you, you because of something you did not choose. Mm. So, so whether that's in those actions or whether that's a smile or reaching out, right, and, and, and inviting someone and, and into not just, you know, a, a gathering, but inviting them in your home safely, obviously, <laughs> with a mask and whatever. Um, like, that's how, you, that's how you do it. It's in the small ways um, that, that, that you can just make such a, such a big difference in, in people's lives and change people's lives, right? Like, I think you, re you remember um, when someone made you feel included oh. during a time where you, you didn't feel like you belonged somewhere. 
I know you've been in a lot of rooms where, and I've heard you speak about this, you know, where you, you know, were either told directly or indirectly, like you don't belong. And we all remember that smile or that person that uh, did that small thing that meant so much to us and, and that, you know, may have changed the course of our lives and made us fight to be in rooms that, you know, continued to exclude us. And so, um, yeah, I, I think that's just the most important question all of us should be asking ourselves every single day. Like, how am I including people? How, how do I include more people? I think the way you spoke about kind of the intentionality of yeah. actively engaging, actively challenging yourself and saying, who's not in this room? Yeah. If somebody is there. How can I ensure that they feel yeah. heard, that they are being heard? Yeah. Right? That this isn't just, you know, one of my one of my constant frustrations is unfortunately how good we are at optics sometimes, right? It's like, Oh, this is a movement of the, of the day. Okay. Let's get, yeah. you know, if feminism is, is in all the headlines, let's get women on the stage. Black yeah. matter, let's get yeah. black activists um, yeah. talking about immigration. Okay. Let's get, and it frustrates me so much because yeah. the same notion of when we talk about kind of the individualized rather than the collective when it comes to discrimination and racism mm-hmm. is, okay, so let's champion this one person. Let's say they're revolutionary. They're a leader. And then we don't actually have to talk about the fact there are so many. There are thousands more Liz Planks or Jamira Burleys or Malala's or there are thousands more. But the system just completely negates that right and it does not allow for for that leadership to really emerge mm-hmm. for a lot of young women or young people of color or you know people who identify differently and so yeah i definitely think that intentionality is is the most critical part it's the fact that somebody has has deliberately seen you and created space for you yeah. so thank you honestly thank you so much liz for, for creating space today and time today to have this conversation where can everyone find you? Where can they follow you? Where can they learn from you? Where, where can they find you? I am everywhere. I am in too many platforms. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on TikTok. I'm, you know, feminist I am. Oh, girl. I've been on TikTok for over a year. I, I was on TikTok when, uh, you know, it was just 12 year olds and, um, and me. Um, <laughs> and, um, and I, I love it. I think it's one of the most actually like radically and like political apps ever. Oh, I'm um, so into it, but I had no idea. Now I'm going to have oh, to like find you and be like, hi, how you doing? Oh my God, please find me. I'm Liz Plank. It, it's the only one where I have actually my name um, because I was so early <laughs> that I got to find it. But, but it is, um, you know, TikTok has been one of the major organized, like, I don't know if you followed this, like Trump rally in Tulsa. Yeah where they were uh, basically say, saying, we got a million people bought tickets for this rally. It's going to be the biggest thing in the world. And 4,000 people showed up because TikTok users bought tickets without the intention of going, knowing that they would not go. And they organized on TikTok. So TikTok is incredible. It's also owned by the Chinese and there's a lot of problems with that and the Chinese government and what they're doing to Muslims. And uh, we you know, can uh, also talk about that. Uh, you know, the, both of those things are true. And I, that's why I, you know, everyone can decide what platforms they wanna be on. There's good and bad in every single one of them. And, you know, Instagram is owned by Mark Zuckerberg who owns Facebook who and Facebook is I think the largest uh in in right-wing propaganda machine in America so um 
there's a lot of issues with a lot of platforms. Sorry, I went real dark in no, I'm, no, trying no, to promote my social media feeds. <laughs> um, where can people find you so they can follow you? Like, listen, the world is a comedy. Fucked up. <laughs> I, I, listen, I have no problem. I think, I, I genuinely think we need to have more conversations about, you know, where we give power. Because where you choose to have voice is a huge part of power, right? And which platforms you, you choose to exercise yourself on or he, is a huge form of power. I think, you know, my sister actually, my younger sister is very into K-pop, which apparently is like a whole political movement now. <laughs> yeah. Well, the K-pop people on TikTok, they're the ones they're who incredible. did that. They're incredible. It's so, insane. So, it's so cool. Back to her, I had read this in the headlines about the rally. I was like, hey, did you know this was happening? She's like, yeah, of course. Like, you're very <laughs> That's amazing. And I was like, oh, okay. And she, and she was the one who explained kind of the K-pop TikTok, you know, marriage that I did not know about. That. Wow. That's amazing. I think the internet's amazing. Um, that's, that's my position. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Liz. Um, if you would like to catch up with Liz, she's Liz Plank on TikTok. She's feminist fabulous. How yes. do you say that? Feminist fabulous. You, 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 you crushed it. That okay. It. Good. Yeah. Feminist fabulous on Instagram. So that's F-E-M-I-N-I-S-T-A-B-U-L-O-U-S. And I believe that's your Twitter as well. Yes. It is. Yes. Awesome. Thank you so much, Liz. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful day. Thank you again. Thank you so much. It was so nice to get to talk to you. And um, yeah, I'm such a, I'm such a huge, I love you. uh, And I love everything that you put out in the world. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to be part of your community um, and making me, it's making me feel included today. Thank you so much for, and honestly, I mean, it's your community too. I love that you keep calling it my community. I'm like, ooh, I have, but it's our collective community. And I think, you know, I think having conversations about what we need to do better um, is wonderful, but also having conversations with people who are doing unique work that is actually, you know, creating conversations a lot of us aren't having um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the idea of masculinity around why it is so critically important for men to embrace gender equality, but beyond that, how we can look at the media, media differently, how we can have yeah. a greater umbrella where everybody mm. believes in women's rights can really collect under feminism and, and what we need to do to create that. So thank you. Yeah. Honestly, thank you. I think it's, uh, it's, it's important and it's the work you do is amazing, but also I leave this conversation with like 10 things I'm going to read and research and look up and watch and learn more about. So I'm, I'm very grateful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Amplify our important message by leaving a review or subscribing. Collaborate with us to encourage more people to shout for change and be on the lookout. We have more episodes coming soon and I can't wait to share them with you. From At The Table, I'm Dr. Lambert. Thank you for joining us.